Hey everybody, welcome to a special edition of the podcast where I'm going to try to lay out just about everything that I know or think that I know about what I've been researching over the past few months related to cancer and probably lots of other diseases too like MS, but I've focused mostly on cancer for the purpose of this presentation. If you have any information about this, go to one of the many Facebook groups that I'm going to mention. I think that these Facebook groups are where the heavy lifting of comparing notes with people that really need to compare notes are at. This is not medical advice. I am not a doctor. The FDA and American Cancer Society would definitely not agree with my conclusions here. Consult your doctor about your situation, especially with regard to taking any of the drugs or supplements that I'll mention. So this journey for me started when I was looking for natural options for COVID in March of 2021. So that research led me to a more natural antiparasitic, which could also be used for COVID, uh, called artemisinin, which is a derivative of a plant called Artemisia annua. It's a known parasite drug. In fact, it also got the Nobel Prize the same year as ivermectin in 2015. It's considered the most effective drug in the world against malaria, which is a parasitical infection, in its refined pharmaceutical injectable form called artesunate, but it's also really effective in cancer. So that led me to the University of Kentucky, which there's an interesting YouTube link that I will uh, put in the links where the University of Kentucky, right at the beginning of COVID, was one of the first to try a new thing for COVID. This is really early on that they posted this. And the reason that they were so ahead of the curve is because they had been using artemisinin tea in cancer and were having such success that they were getting the local farmers to, to stop farming tobacco and instead teaching them how to farm artemisia annua. So I was interested in this connection between artemisinin and cancer, and that led me to a website called jeffrey-md.com and an article called Artemisinin, Our Ultimate Cancer Weapon, A Gift from China, posted in 2016, so a year after it had won the Nobel Prize. The article is interesting because it describes the method of action that in which artemisinin kills cancer cells, which is all about iron. Uh, cancer cells are particularly hungry for iron and they take it up into cancer cells. Well, artemisinin has a reaction with iron that turns it into hydrogen peroxide, which is very selective to just kill the cancer cells. And according to Dash and others, it also is unique in that it also kills cancer stem cells, which is the thing that makes cancer come back after you kill it the first time. But anyway, it was less about finding this article and this uh, method of action for artemisinin and cancer, but it was more about finding this person, Jeffrey-MD. So Jeffrey Dash is, for all intents and purposes, a normal doctor. His story is that somebody in his family had gotten cancer, and one of his strengths was doing research. So he looked into all the medical literature, you know, all the stuff on PubMed. And to his surprise, there were thousands and thousands of articles of cancer being cured, typically what he starts to develop in his aggregation of this material is that typically these cases of cancer being cured, two different pathways of the cancer cells being uh, involved. So you'd have to shut down basically its glucose some way, but then you also need to give it some kind of 
additional drug. Usually these drugs are repurposed generic drugs. They're not costly drugs. Drugs like hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, uh, artemisinin, fembendazole, membendazole, niclosamide, any antiparasitic. He wrote a book called Cracking Cancer Toolkit in which he mostly just aggregates all these different uh, studies. So it's a very thick book with tons and tons of references. In my opinion, it's absolutely critical to get the Kindle version of his book so that you can search because you'll need to search a particular type of cancer or particular types of drugs to really get much use out of it. But the real game changer with his material was his introduction of cancer as a metabolic disease. It's a theory that other people besides him believe, notably Dr. Thomas Seffried, who has a lot more information on YouTube and is probably a lot better of a person to send you to to describe what the metabolic theory of cancer is. He's a much better teacher. Jeffrey Dash's presentations are very, very technical. He does not uh, dumb anything down. Check out Thomas Seffried on YouTube for more about the metabolic theory of cancer to sort of walk you through a better presentation. But the bottom line is that they believe there's a problem with the mitochondria, the energy portion of the cell, the metabolic portion of the cell. And they're saying that something has messed up with the energy, the mitochondria, which is then causing the nucleus to spit out bad code. Because the mainstream, current mainstream view of cancer is that something has gone wrong with the nucleus of the cell. And the nucleus just is randomly spitting out bad genetic code. Their view is that cancer cells uh, need glucose to, to produce the energy of the mitochondria. So if you can shut down the glucose, you shut down the energy of the cell. And there are certain drugs that you can use, like metformin, that mimic fasting or a ketogenic diet. And so Thomas Seffried is really interesting with this. And he has started to do a lot of clinical research, but in his presentations, he describes how you know, they're doing these uh, uh, tests of, of cancer cells as people are trying these different things. And there is no doubt, and he's a big prop proponent of like serious fasting, like fasting for multiple, multiple days, like completely shutting off uh, glucose. Uh, he, But he says that that's only part of the equation. The other part, and in his case, he uses chloroquine, which is a sort of a, a version of hydroxychloroquine. Uh, but he says that those two things in combination are what is needed. You can basically slow cancer's growth substantially by fasting or a perfect ketogenic diet, basically shutting off glucose from the system, but it won't cure cancer. And anything that slows the glucose down is going to help. It's going to buy you time because that's the energy basically that a lot of these cancer cells are using to, to proliferate. Now let's talk about the parasite connection. The big breakthrough for me was finding a video on YouTube, which is called Video Proof Cancer is Caused by Parasites. It's like once you see it with your own eyes, then you know how it works. And so when you read these papers about uh, extracellular vesicles and other things I'll talk about, you'll know what they're talking about because you will have seen it. What it shows is different parasites, little worms and other shapes of these alive beings, which are swimming over to cells and then getting inside the cells and then growing from the cells and reproducing in the cells and, there, and thereby killing the cells and their eggs or different larval stage then leaves. And those little larval stages then swim over to other cells and they get in the cells and they reproduce. And it is a life cycle of an alive being. And there are something like 
six different shapes or, or, or different types of these really small things, but, and these are all in cancer cells. The first thing you should know about this is that these are very, very tiny. The reason why this isn't super known is because we're talking about exceedingly small things. You have to have an electron microscope, which is incredibly expensive to not just own, but to maintain. I mean, you have to like literally have the right foundation of a building that uh, adjusts for the earth's movements and stuff. It all has to be in a vacuum for a comparison, some of these smaller larval stages like the exosomes, well, that's what mainstream science calls them. These exosomes are like a thousand times smaller than a blood cell. But one of the things that this does is it might explain the conundrum of the metabolic theory for cancer people, which know that something is happening to the mitochondria, but have no proposals as to what that might be. But if these little uh, parasites are getting into a cell, presumably they're living off of that cell's energy produced by the mitochondria or somehow converting that into their own uh, energy to grow in the cell and to reproduce in the cell or whatever they need to be, well, parasites. They're feeding off the cell and therefore the mitochondria is struggling, therefore the nucleus is struggling. So, and also understand that as far as I know, Mainstream science doesn't believe that there are parasites this small on this level of a nanoscale. They call these things, and this is mentioned in that uh, video, the German video, they call it these, because they know these exist, they have seen these same things that we're talking about in this video, but it, they call them extracellular vesicles. And that's a very important keyword that opened up a huge amount of a treasure trove of research in the medical literature, extracellular vesicles and cancer. And it's my take on it is that they all know these things are doing this, but their view is that these little vesicles uh, of which they believe that there are certain types, there's like six types of these extracellular vesicles, the smallest of which they call exosomes. They don't believe that they're alive. They believe that they're doing all the things that are in that video but they don't treat it as if they are alive. They know also that vesicles are the way that cancer cells infect healthy cells. So this is an important thing to know is that, that when these extracellular vesicles get into your bloodstream, so let's say it, this all starts in your blood and I'll talk about the life cycle later, but once the little eggs can get into your blood, um, that's kind of okay until they get out of your blood. It's really when they have some kind of uh, endothelial breakdown or something where they can get out of your circulatory system and get into, say, a liver cell or a brain cell or other kinds of cells that they begin this cell infection in those cells. And that's what they would re refer to as metastasizing. So you've got cancer in, in, in some area of your body, but then it uh, these things get into your bloodstream and go to some other part of your body and then start the infection over there. They understand that it's these cellular vesicles. They've done lots of different studies to show it's these little vesicles that are actually carrying what they consider the information about cancer to the other cells. Remember, they don't think they're alive, so they have to explain it in terms of they're somehow through interesting unknown means carrying the information to the other cell and therefore infecting it where you don't need to like come up with that magic if it's a really alive thing then it just it's just a worm that goes over there and, and and reproduces in another cell so you don't need it to have magic if it's alive but anyway one interesting aspect of this that they know that parasites themselves so let's talk about a known parasite like a i don't know a 
some some tapeworm or something. They know that actual par parasites, which of course are much, much, much larger than these extracellular vesicles, but they know that parasites can release extracellular vesicles. But they're also carrying the information about which drugs to be resistant to. But uh, it's a, for all intents and purposes, it seems to be the same problem, which is that you hit it with chemotherapy, you initially kill most of the cancer cells, but there's this little, what we would call exosomes, or I would call the larva stage, that once they're threatened, and you can see this in the video, which is really interesting, when they're hit with this uh, chemicals, the, the, the little worm turns into like five of these exosomes. Like it, it reacts to it by changing its form into these exosomes. And in the parasite world, that's what they do. They, 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 they hide in these really uh, sturdy uh, stasises for long periods of time. They can live like on a leaf until some animal comes by and eats it. And it could be there for years. But when they express again, when these eggs, for lack of a better word, hatch again, and you have cancer again, now they know to be immune from whatever it is you tried to kill them with in the first place. Still, there is a big problem here, which is, okay, so these microparasites exist that science doesn't believe exist. Where are they coming from, A, and why is it that cancer is getting worse and, and in our modern world? Why didn't, if it's just about these microparasites, what has changed in the modern world where we all get cancer all the time now and it's getting worse? And that's where Holda Clark enters the picture because I do believe that she has solved both of those things, albeit by um, non-conventional means. And from, from everything I can tell, she really did, did seem to devote her life to this topic, and but she was absolutely destroyed by the U.S. government for claiming that she could cure cancer. And man, they ran her out of the country. They had like all government agencies on her back. She eventually had to go to Mexico. There are some controversies around her, and I don't agree with her with everything, but I do think that in the aggregate, she not only solved some of the problems we're about to talk about, but I do think that she was a hero who really did just want to cure people of cancer. All these cancers are caused by the presence of a parasite. She singles it down to one particular type of parasite called the human liver fluke parasite. So this is a big parasite. This is much, much, much bigger than these extracellular vesicle microorganisms. This is a real large, well, comparatively large parasite called a human liver fluke that exists primarily in Southeast Asia. And it lives, we get it through contact usually with different types of feces and stuff. If we have pets and stuff like that, this is what her theory is. Uh, but, I mean, you can look at all the different ways you can get parasites. The interesting thing about this liver fluke is that it attaches to the walls. It has a unique ability to attach to the walls. Also opens up a little bit of blood there. So it has a place for not itself to get into your blood, but for its uh, eggs to get into your blood. These eggs then begin a life cycle that never really produces the same kind of life cycle this thing would exist in nature. And, and Holda Clark ex explains this in her uh, books, the six different life stages of this human liver fluke in this unique circumstance. Those are all different stages of this uh, larva stage of the human liver fluke in the human body. And the reason I'm saying it like that is she makes the point that in uh, the natural environment, like in a pond where these things infect snails, they have a very particular life cycle of many different uh, body types. But in the human cells, remember these are, these are infecting now blood cells and different 
liver cells and stuff, extremely micro things, these eggs, these exosomes or whatever. And so it has a different size life cycle. The whole thing is a different way that it would express itself if it did, if it lived in a, in a snail's uh, system as opposed to the human bloodstream. So that's what she mostly expresses is that these things aren't developing into human liver flukes. They ne once they get into the bloodstream, they're ne they'll never reproduce into a human liver fluke again. They're, they don't have a mature the ability to achieve that maturity in this context. That was a big breakthrough to, to at least have a framework to understand how real known parasites are connected to these microparasites that get into our blood. The other thing that she says with regard to, well, why is this happening more frequently now than it was in the past? And she says that it also is toxicity. So there are certain environmental conditions that we can do, things that we can eat or lifestyle situations that can make our, uh, our cells toxic and therefore have the environment that would allow these these parasites, microparasites, to thrive. In her later books, and I'll link an archive.org article with all of Holda Clark's books. In her later books, she changed her view that of the nature of this toxicity to largely be a result of Clorox bleach in drinking water. And by this, she makes a hard distinction between like a food safe bleach that can safely be used in certain water treatment plants um, versus putting Clorox bleach or its, you know, generic alternatives, um, a cheap bleach into drinking water to purify it. Look, I don't know if that's true or not. Take Holda Clark's stuff with a big grain of salt, but I will say that that some of the stuff that she did is pretty interesting in light of the fact of the things that we've figured out since then. But let's move on to a really interesting part of Holda Clark's theory, which is something she calls the zapper. The zapper is a simple electronic device that she shows in her books how to make it. She encourages people to make it. And it emits a particular frequency uh, to these two little copper cylinders that you hold in your hand. And the idea is that this frequency has the ability to break apart all pathogens. And I agree, it sounds totally crazy. It looks totally crazy. And if you want to go ahead and turn this whole thing off now, I would not blame you because it reminds me of that scene in Napoleon Dynamite when Uncle Rico got a time machine off the internet and how ridiculous that seemed. But before you write this off, let me talk about... It's called Shattering Cancer with Resonant Frequencies by Anthony Holland at TED Talks at Skidmore College. But basically what they did is they took different frequencies and shattered and tested all kinds of different organisms to see at what point the organism would break apart from this frequency. So it's a lot like a person who can shatter a glass with their voice. The first thing that you do in that case is you find out what the frequency of that glass is because it'll be different per glass and a lot of times you can put water on the rim of a, a glass and, and run your finger and find out what that note is. And my understanding is you basically sing at that note at a really, really loud uh, amount and because it's resonant to that glass, the glass will break. And apparently all kinds of microorganisms have different 
resonances, completely different frequencies in which they operate. Now, Holda Clark, who was writing decades and decades before this, did essentially the same legwork that he did. She was able to, according to her, find out which frequencies would kill certain uh, parasites or certain cells and different things. So she has this whole thing mapped out in which frequencies. But she says that all the mapping out the individual stuff isn't even necessary anymore. You can just flip one frequency that's a square wave or something like that, that will kill all pathogens, including parasites. So it's kind of like, is this too good to be true? I don't know. But again, look at it in, in comparison to what this guy said many decades later. So you can buy these things on eBay. You can buy them on uh, different websites and stuff. But I, I just don't know. I mean, I would be interested in what, if you guys have had any success, if anybody out there knows about this and it really did some good for them, this could be hard on your liver too. If it worked, if it works, if it kills off parasites, then you're going to have a major parasite die-off, which is all going to have to be processed by your liver and kidneys and however it works, you feel bad for a while. And it kind of like makes some people think they're having a negative reaction when it could be exactly the reaction that you want. And that's why it's always a good time to boost your immune system, to have the best possible immune system, usually through vitamin C or whatever interventions you can make there during the time that it's trying to deal with all these additional dead parasites. Before I move on from Holda Clark, let me talk about some of the controversies and some of the places I don't agree with her. As I said, I think that she is a pioneer. She's a person that was doing this before anybody and had most of the big stuff right, though I think that she was uh, a little early on the like the types of antiparasitics and the dosages and those things uh, have, I think, been refined. But probably the biggest thing, if you look up Holda Clark, the biggest gotcha thing is that they'll say that she died of cancer. So at the age of 80, she died. There are conflicting stories about this. Look, I don't know if she did or not. I know that she was 80 and nobody lives forever. And I think that even Holda Clark would admit that some of her interventions didn't weren't 100% and that certain types of cancers didn't, uh, didn't respond to her treatments. I would also say she was more vulnerable than anybody if her theory was correct, if she was seeing all these patients that had parasites. And it stands to reason that she probably would get infected with a lot of new stuff, including some of those that uh, were difficult to cure. But in any case, that's the main thing you'll hear about Holda Clark is that she died of cancer, the lady who supposedly had the cure for cancer. All right, let's move on to multiple sclerosis. So there was a paragraph in one of Holda Clark's book who, remember, Holda Clark believes that pretty much every disease is caused by parasites. And either parasites or some sort of toxicity anyway. And she just says like a paragraph about multiple sclerosis. Yeah, multiple sclerosis is uh, parasites on the brain stem and, and brain possibly. So I started looking up MS with relation to some of these other keywords, extracellular vesicles, started researching MS and some of the antiparasitic drugs. Have there been any interventions with antiparasitics? Immediately, there seemed to be some kind of recognition that at least antiparasitics are having great effect on multiple sclerosis. And that led me to a new person, somebody called Pam Bartha, who has a YouTube channel called Live Disease Free. This is what the bio says on her YouTube page. Clinically diagnosed with multiple sclerosis at the age of 28, Pam Bartha chose an alternative approach to recovery. Now, decades later and still symptom-free, she coaches others on how to treat the root cause of chronic disease using a holistic approach. She can teach you how to. Pam is the author of Become a Wellness Champion and founder of Live Disease Free. She is a wellness expert, coach, and speaker. She seems like a very normal person. I have a friend who has MS, and I've recently recommended 
uh, Pam Bartha to her. Now, what I will say, and they're still in the early stages, they haven't even done the consultation yet, but I'm, my understanding is that this Pam Bartha will do this free consultation and then offer you this la- larger thing, like a $3,000, $2,000 thing in which she kind of personally coaches you through what she did and how to do it and stuff like that. So people could look at that like this is just a money grab or something, and it may be. Some other people that have a piece of the puzzle is Dr. Lee Merritt. So she became famous during COVID. She was a doctor that was uh, outspoken against the mRNA vaccines and a number of other things. She's appeared in multiple documentaries related to COVID-19. So Dr. Lee Merritt has gone basically all into the parasites are the cause for every disease situation. I'll link a rumble video where she goes over a presentation called uh, Parasites, a new paradigm. All right, so let's talk about protocols, some practical things that you can do if you have cancer. The first thing I would say though is not about that, it's about God. And I would encourage you to go through every step of your process and journey with this with God. That is, read the Bible. Let him speak to you through that on a regular daily or nightly basis. Uh, Pray about not just the things that you need in a big scale, but also a small scale, because it's in him showing you how much he wants to be involved and to help you that helps you to Uh, love him and to build a relationship with him. If you're mad at God, stop being mad at God. The second thing I would say is prepare yourself for some being proactive. You've really got, I'm not going to give you a silver bullet here. I'm not going to tell you take this and this amount and do this much or whatever. I'm going to have to insist that you figure this out for yourself. I'm going to give you a lot of stuff to go on, but I'm going to leave it up to you as to exactly how this will work in your situation. So you're going to have to be a little bit proactive. The first thing that I would say to do is to get blood tests and to get them regularly, to do it independently if you have to, if your doctor doesn't want to do it. But if you have cancer, usually you have uh, some kind of cancer diagnostic tool to get your cancer numbers. Those cancer numbers can be different depending on the types of cancer. There's different types of blood tests that they can run depending on the type of cancer. And if they're higher, it means that the cancer is growing and, and getting worse. If they're lower, it means the cancer is uh, not proliferating much uh, as much or and is dying or whatever. If you are getting regular tests, like like let's say once a month, then you can track how well each intervention is doing. So for example, I'm going to recommend like trying different protocols, different like maybe starting off with a Joe Tippins protocol, which I'll describe here in a second, and try that for a month and then see how your cancer numbers are doing versus the the baseline, the first cancer numbers. If they're going down, maybe you could tweak it, tweak the dosage, do some other things. If they didn't change or are going up, then I would then I wouldn't continue that protocol anymore. I would use artemisinin and, and, and iron, as we'll talk about. All para- anti-parasitic drugs are not created equal. They are killing parasites in different ways. Um, ben- Bendazole kills parasites in a different way that artemisinin does, in a different way that hydroxychloroquine does, et cetera, et cetera. So it, depending on your cancer, it may not respond to certain types. But let's get into it, and let's start with the Joe Tippins protocol. Joe Tippins is a guy that you can watch on YouTube. They did some news stories on him. He had severe cancer. He was told he had like two weeks to live, sent home to die, nothing we can do. And a veterinarian uh, friend 
recommended to him to use a drug called fenbendazole. Fenbendazole is the veterinary version of a drug called menbendazole, which as far as I know is essentially the same thing. And so fenbendazole had been known to cure cancer in dogs. And so his veterinarian friend says, hey, try this if you got nothing else and they're telling you got two weeks to live. And Joe Tippins gets cured of cancer. And it's been, you know, many, many, many years later, he's still up and kicking. And he has gone totally into the idea of developing this protocol and describing the dosages. So one of the reasons that I'm talking about him particularly is because he's one of the few people that have sort of developed a community, if you will, around a specific protocol. Mostly it revolves around Panicure, which is a thing you can buy at Tractor Supply or whatever, it's a, or on Amazon. It's Fenbendazole 222 milligram packets, although there are different uh, dosages that he says if you get the liquid version. Three days on or four days off, and four or four days on and three days off. In other words, for one portion of the week, you're taking the antiparasitic every single day, and then you give your body a break for the other half of the week. And this is said to, number one, be a time for your body to sort of recuperate and your immune system to deal with the die-off, and that, that recuperation time is a great time to take high amounts of vitamin C. It's a very common thing to recommend liver uh, support stuff like milk, thistle. You have to understand if you're taking an antiparasitic, what its job is, is to kill an alive being. You're taking a poison, basically. You have to be super careful. That's where I would start. I would try that. I would get my blood work done before I started and after I started to see if I was showing improvements and then consistently see how it was doing. It should be going completely down to zero. If it wasn't, my next thing would be to move to artemisinin. A four days on, I think it's a four days on, three days off, or three days on, four days off. Uh, situation, which is supplemented with iron. And here's a little bit of controversy because if you remember from earlier, the method of action that artemisinin has is that it interacts with iron and kills cancer cells, which take up iron and therefore have a ton of iron. So, so some people believe that you should not take supplemental iron when taking artemisinin. My view is I've kind of landed on the side of that you probably should take a little bit. Not a whole lot, you shouldn't overdo it, but maybe a little bit of iron. And again, there are protocols out there that say when, how much iron to take and when and different things. Alternatively, you could get your iron, find out what iron rich foods are out there and just eat a lot of that stuff instead of taking a pill of iron. Make sure you're eating that kind of stuff while you're taking artemisinin. And I would, I would say that probably a safer way to get the iron, but make sure that you are getting the iron. So that would be my next move if fenbendazole didn't work for me. And I would also be careful not to be using too small of doses. I mean, you would hate to come to the end of this and find out that it was because you didn't use enough of the dosage that it could have worked. But again, that comes back to your risk tolerance and what you're willing to do. Because this stuff, I mean, if you take too much, it could really hurt your liver, right? So you're risking your liver's health for this. I mean, I don't know how serious that is. I'm being maybe a little bit overly cautious about telling you how dangerous antiparasitic drugs are for your liver. I don't know what it really is or whatever. It's just I'm being cautious about that to make it a big deal. So I would move to artemisinin. If that didn't work, I would use hydroxychloroquine. And this is something I would really go with the Cracking Cancer Toolkit book from Jeffrey Dash and use that Kindle version. And I would search my type of cancer with some of these different antiparasitics because a lot of these papers, they're gonna tell you exactly what the dosage was and what the outcome was with, with these studies. And you're like, well, that worked with them. I would also go completely keto 
during this process, or as much as I could tolerate, uh, because as I think uh, that the Thomas Seffried, who I mentioned earlier, who is really into the the super days fasting, like multiple weeks fasting to get the glucose and glycogen levels to basically zero, as he says, this will that will completely slow down your cancer. Think of it as the food that your cancer needs is that sugar. It will not cure your cancer. It will not stop the cancer, but it's going to slow it down. A couple other antiparasitics you can get fairly easily: ivermectin. Uh, to their credit, they were selling horse paste all throughout the pandemic. It never got banned on Amazon. It was always selling. It was always there. The prices went up pretty considerably, but it was always there, and it's still there. You can get horse paste. It's the same molecule as ivermectin. It's The dosage is, like for at least COVID, according to the FLCC, the, the frontline doctors and, and Pierre Corey and all that stuff, so you would uh, typical horse paste tube has a little weight dial on it, and you would just dial in your weight, and you would eat that much of it once a day, and then you eat your weight, uh, move the dial to your weight again, and eat that once a day, five days a week. That's what is recommended for horses. A couple other things. I did want to mention Lee Merritt's protocol, who I mentioned er earlier. She has published a, a, a protocol called Parasites and the Elimination Protocol I did for myself at drleemerritt.com. I think also The Medical Rebel is another way to get to her website. But in any case, she goes through exact details of which drug she, she took and how much. She mentions Panicure, which is Fembendazole. She mentions uh, Nidazoxanide. And here is a person who is a doctor who has uh, uh, done it herself and probably a good place to start. Let me briefly hit on some other options too. Hydroxychloroquine is something that if you can get, you can get quinine as a supplement online. You can also get where quinine comes from, which is this bark called the chinchona bark. And you can make tea out of it. It's something that people have been doing since time immemorial. Let me finish this by talking about a doctor and how to find a good doctor. There are a couple things I would recommend. First, you know, Dr. Peter McCullough, who also was a big deal during the COVID thing. He has a new company that he supports called The Wellness Company twc.health, the wellness company with Peter McCullough. They do online, you know, medicine and they can prescribe stuff like hydroxychloroquine. This is usually for like long COVID and different things. But I would also recommend a something which is looking up the keyword for uh, functional medicine. This is a term that I got from a guy online, Dr. Mark Hyman, who I've always liked for his nutritional stuff. He seems like he is on the cutting edge of what's happening with microbiomes and stuff. If I hear of somebody saying they've got some kind of problem, I'm usually cross-referencing it with Dr. Mark Hyman, who refers to himself as a functional medicine doctor. This term seems to have gained traction. And my guess is if you type in the word functional medicine doctor and your area, you're gonna find somebody locally that calls themselves a functional medicine doctor. And the reason I like this better than the other natural health options in your local area is that it's a crapshoot with some of these natural doctors. It's all over the board out there with the natural medicine. So functional medicine is a way for, this is very, uh, these are people that are mostly defined by trying to figure out what's causing the problem. They can prescribe whatever they need to prescribe, but they're more often going to be looking for, you know, doing tests on your microbiome and different things like that. And I feel like they are just a better option for most people and would certainly be the kind of doctor who would be open to you saying, look, I've read these papers that say that antiparasitical drugs are having better effect on cancer than the traditional means. Can we try some of this? And that's the kind of doctor who would be like, yeah, 
let's give it a shot. Okay, thank you for your time. If you made it this far and check out the links in the description of this podcast, I will also post a roundup of this information to those uh, Facebook groups that I mentioned earlier.